0: The planets puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man And until you've thoroughly tested every last close just view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. says well. Where would we be without you?
1: Here we go, Higher Side Chatters, drinking a little drink, smoking a little smoke, and ready to get weird with you. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and today is a hell of an episode. I've been holding on to it for way too long, but the live show took a whole lot of preparation, and it took a lot of time to actually get it done and put it out. And my talk with Chris didn't follow the typical interview timeline because we ran into a couple of different issues along the way that caused us to have to stop or even go back and retread some of the same ground. But it was a fun day of getting really deep into the Siren Saga and all the areas that it spirals out into. I think you end up with almost an extra hour of show when it's all said and done, and who doesn't like that? But really, the reason I'm jumping the gun to talk to you here is to say that we recorded this just days before the Vegas shooting, which is something that Chris and me too, really, have just been obsessed over since it happened. And what's really crazy is that so many symbolic elements show up in both cases. I think the first thing Chris said to me after the shooting was, didn't we just spend a lot of time talking about Black Pyramids in Las Vegas? And it's true. I say it in the show, but we had to leave some threads alone because we didn't want to overcomplicate the story. But Vegas and Black Pyramids are a big part of it. And Chris has been throwing out warnings related to bad omens in Vegas and symbolic pressure mounting since May. But we also know from Austin Kopic and Preston Gibbs, our astrology guests, that Regulus is the star of the show this year. The brightest star in the constellation of Leo. Leo is the lion, and who is at the very heart of the whole Vegas thing? MGM. What's their logo, their classic symbol they've used forever? The lion. So this is the sort of connection-making that conspiracy folks get mocked for with token characters in movies and TV, but this is how a synchro-mystic sees the world. Connections matter, symbols matter, and the gods are more involved than materialists would have you believe. And many guests are seeing the current agenda as blending the worlds or opening portals for the elite's archonic overlords to spill in through. And I'm starting to concur. It is what our oldest texts seem to describe. And Chris also mentioned to me the other day that he thinks that's why twinning has been such a theme lately, and comes up in this case too. The whole as-above-so-below thing, like mirroring, much like the date ten one itself. But I should just play the thing. I only wanted you to keep some of the Vegas symbolism in mind with this show and say that I'm actually very glad we recorded it before the shooting happened, or Vegas would have just dominated the whole show. And now you actually get a lot of context backfilled, but you can see just how epically this story spirals out by the time the episode's over. And the Vegas situation also kind of helped Chris make so many new connections that weren't there at the time either. So do read The Secret Sun when you're done and go through his recent posts. It's a great follow-up to an already wild story. And with that, let's dive in. The song to the siren, music magic, and rebuilding Babylon with the man himself, Chris Knowles. it and park it, tune in and
0: spark it, goes great about to open. On what we thought we knew for certain, so we can see the world with a brand new set of eyes.
1: Alright, Higher Side Chatters, we've been around long enough to see the strange synchronicities that seem to run in the background of reality, sometimes so elaborate as to suggest a web of otherworldly influence that makes one wonder if the entire earthly plane is nothing more than a stage for multidimensional actors regularly rerunning the old scripts of Babylon. Add in the conspiratorial call signs of secret orders and mystery cults, and life seems even more like a backstage battle for influence, initiation, and indoctrination that only those outside the box really have the eyes to see. Is there some dark alliance between the upper crust and the underworld? Some partnership between political players, pop culture creators, and the paranormal? Or maybe the nexus of deep state scientists and sorcerers of social engineering have just come to realize that if they chum the waters of reality, some strange things come to play. However you try to explain it, it always seems to get weirder, and that's why we need a guy like today's returning guest, Chris Knowles. Of course, Chris runs the ever-potent Secret Sun blog and is the author of great books like Our Gods Wear Spandex, The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes, and The Secret History of Rock and Roll, The Mysterious Roots of Modern Music. One of my favorite sages of synchromysticism, the connector of dots, the untangler of webs, Chris, my man, how the hell are ya?
2: I am awesome. Anytime talking to Greg Calward is a good time, (laughs) as far
1: as I'm concerned. Always. (laughs) I appreciate that, man. Yeah, you too. Great to talk to you again. Last time we did this was January. The new president was just taking office. And we talked about a lot of the eerie tone that was going on in Washington. And, you know, you could kind of sense the uneasiness. And now that we're entering the last couple months of the year, I guess I'd ask you, how do you feel about things now? Has anything changed? I think
2: things have changed. What we saw, what I very strongly believe we saw is the after effects of a bi war you know, intramural wrangling in Washington between power structures and power players. I think that the DNC hack, which I absolutely believe was an inside job. I don't believe the Russia thing for a moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I call the Podesta issue, which mutated into Pizzagate, you know, and sort of took on a life of its own. But I think that the demons, you know, let out of the box with with all that you know, skullduggery and cloak and dagger <laughs> really seem to create this post-election fugue state, because I think everyone was just sort of scrambling around, trying to figure out how they're going to respond to this, what they are going to do, you know, what their strategy is going to be. And it's interesting, we saw sort of like a Gladio-style strategy of tension unveiled, which is seems to be dying down a bit now. You know, we saw these massive rallies. And the, you know, the wars, which all seem to be part of the same strategy, just different octopus limbs, so to speak, (laughs) different tentacles. But I think things of what we see now, it's interesting what I was looking for in the wake of the election. Since I I didn't vote and, you know, had no dog in the fight, is I was looking for the theme. What's the theme with Obama? We saw this, you know, and this is even before the election, all this Egyptian, King Tut, all this weird kind of cryptomasonic
1: Right, rising sun.
2: Yeah, all that kind of thing. You know, and I talked about the stairway to Sirius, how Obama and McCain seemed to split up the component parts of the Sirius hieroglyph and incorporate them into their election campaign logos. And you know, I thought, well, this is really odd. What's this about? And that really unleashed this whole epic series of posts on the stairway to serious and what that means and you know the second degree masonic tracing board and the world financial center and now you know the world trade one or whatever it's called and alignment with the monolith hotel and just all this kind of stuff it was just one thing after another but we're also getting hit with a lot of things like the spectacle at dubai at the atlantis hotel which you're just watching going wait this is in a very conservative muslim country and this is like literally the most pagan thing I've ever seen in my life. What the (laughs) hell is going on here? You know, there are all these sort of themes like seen from space. I mean, there was a whole bunch of themes that I was trying to sort through. What I saw with the Trump thing was just these Roman themes. You know, people who don't live in New Jersey, haven't been in Atlantic City, don't realize that the Trump casino was sort of cheek by jowl with the old Caesar's Palace. You know, these two casinos are like almost in the same block. And so I sort of started thinking about these Roman themes, and I was thinking about, you know, he started interviewing all these generals, and all these generals were being absorbed into his administration, and I was like, this is the Praetorian Guard. I mean, this is literally what we're seeing. This is, you know, in the old days, when there was some sort of chaos in Rome, the Praetorian Guard would take over, and put a puppet in the, the Emperor's seat, and this happened mm. throughout the, what they called the, crisis of the third century. So I'm like, oh, wow, this is kind of what... And Trump has always really played up this whole Caesar, Roman emperor kind of motif. You know, you see this in his apartment, his home. He's really kind of gravitated towards these themes and archetypes. So I was kind of like seizing on that. And then, I, you know, this whole thing with Mithras, which is literally we could do an epic series of shows on Mithras and how this archetypes just seems to be rising everywhere you look but a lot of people if you're not from New Jersey don't realize this when Trump goes on vacation he goes to Bedminster which is literally right down the street from me and at one point across the street from him was AT&T world's headquarters and there was a statue called the spirit of electricity or the genius of electricity something like that and it was basically a 20th century Mithras statue I mean it's based exactly on old. Icons of Mithras. So I'm thinking, okay, so he's right across the street from Mithras. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is like a weird conjunction. And now what we see in Washington is that there's this triumvirate. <laughs> we are literally ruled like just like you know, this the early imperial era. We're we ruled by a triumvirate. You have Kelly, chief of staff. You know, I mean, Donald Trump can't even answer his phone without getting permission from Kelly. Now, <laughs> you have McMaster, who's completely taken over the foreign policy apparatus and you have mattis who's in charge of you know the imperial war machine you know these three bone crushers like yeah very frightening men who are are running the country right now and it literally is back to imperial rome i mean people (laughs) have always made those comparisons those metaphors no this is the roman imperial LARP that, you know, this is guys who are really into like Roman Empire role playing games, you know, let's do this for real. (laughs) You
3: know, Right. So,
2: yeah. So I think really to sum it up, I mean, what we really saw is I think we just saw there was a real bomb dropped in the middle of Washington, so to speak, with the DNC hacks and the pedestrian emails. And everyone was just scrambling around, you know, first of all, trying to protect themselves. They're probably all lawyering up. But. I think that they were really trying to figure out, like, how do we respond to this? This is really bad. This is serious. What do we do here? And I think, you know, I don't don't want to offend any of Pizzagate people per se, but I think the whole Pizzagate thing kind of gave them air cover. It sort of steered attention away from what was really going on and what was really being said in those emails.
1: I mean, yeah, I think that's fair because the pedophile thing has been a part of conspiracy culture forever that the elite abuse children it really isn't uh, a secret at this point it doesn't seem but Washington yeah oh right it's systemic yeah and the Pizzagate thing it really did just take all of that wrap it in a little package and put it over on the side and then they send in that guy with the gun and then that's the story and now everybody's like really hush hush about pedophilia because you don't know if you set somebody off, some crazy guy might go in and start shooting and that's so irresponsible to even be talking about. So I agree with you. They definitely took it and spun it off and kind of washed their hands of it and put it over there. And that's how they get out of all this stuff. Whenever people start to see the breadcrumbs.
2: Yeah. There's a mass of it, you know, and everyone is afraid that some guy with an IMDb page was going to, uh, you know, storm into there restaurant or whatever i mean or people are they're gonna i don't know inspire that it's that's a topic for another discussion it's mm-hmm. it's, it's all craziness but again it's guys who are like really into the pizza game thing you know don't realize who they're playing with they don't realize the playing field they're on they're mm-hmm. not playing with rival bloggers or rival youtube producers you're dealing with The people who bomb countries so you better get all your information squared away before you start fucking with those guys
1: right man and you also made an interesting point about the recent nfl dust-up that it too seems like it's in that nexus of a blatant military recruitment campaign a patriotism play seems to fit right in with the whole trump motif
2: yeah it's interesting because the whole idea of the NFL players standing for the National Anthem started back in 2009, and it was basically an initiative taken by the Department of Defense and the National Guard and you know, as basically a recruitment tool to get people who go to football games, particularly younger people, obviously younger people, to sign up for the military. You know, It was really part of a recruitment drive. Now, the interesting thing to me about all of this is there are a couple things that are interesting. First of all, we have a government which is run by generals, or we have a White House that is run by generals, and they choose this time to poke at that hornet's nest, and it's the usual Trump thing, you know, provocation and reaction. But there's another thing that, again, this is a topic for an entire program, Mm -hmm. do you remember starting, I guess... Really came to fruition in 2012 when Madonna puts on this Egyptian, Roman, pagan, militaristic, androgynous <laughs> display. You know, it's just like this ritual and yeah. everyone just like lights up. You know, all the conspiracy channels just light up like a Christmas tree over this. That starts, you see it ramping up around the same time that the Initiative to have the NFL players stand for the national anthem. So it's very curious to me and very interesting to me that these really ostentatious Roman imperial just pagan ritual displays start ramping up and getting really in your face at the same time this military involvement in the NFL takes off. So I, I don't think that's a coincidence. And again, this is a topic for an entirely different program. But I mean, look at how these things, you know, particularly with the halftime shows, have really taken off. And you see the manufactured controversies about them, controversy about the symbolism with Beyonce and, and Black Lives Matter. But really what she was doing was military drills, you know, with her dancers. I mean, it's it's all this militarism and regimentation that we're seeing in conjunction with this like really bizarre and flagrant ritual paganism.
3: Hmm.
1: (laughs) It is strange, man. And you're right. That could be a whole show on its own. And I do want to get into the the big thing we're going to talk about because it is lengthy and it's uh, this Siren Saga. And I've been reading it, this epic synchromystic web revolving around the song to the siren that you've been writing about it weaves through several musical artists from jeff buckley and the Cocteau twins all the way up to chris cornell and chester bennington and it is a hell of a ride with a web of connections and sinks involving the siren and water and drowning and it is just mind-blowing and it's a pretty big story and you refer to it as a great case study and i guess i would ask you what would you say this is a great case study of because sometimes it's really hard to get a clear picture of what we're seeing, even when we notice the connections, like what sort of perspective or worldview does a story like this work to validate? So in other words, what the hell has Chris been ranting on
2: about for the past (laughs) five months? Well, to be honest with you, it's been something that I've been trying to wrap my head around because I didn't expect to be working on this. I didn't expect these symbols to show up and I didn't expect them to show up the way they did. Basically, you know, what I would sum it up as, the elevator pitch here, is that this is the apocalypse, the siren is the horror Babylon, and the song to the siren is a prophecy of death. I mean, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. You know, it's a lot more complicated than that, but that's basically what we're looking at. Right. As strange as that sounds, it's taken me five months to sort of summate all this because, you know, when you're... In the middle of it, it's hard to get perspective on it. But that's pretty much what we're looking at.
1: Right on. Yeah. I'm, you know, as a guy who gets kind of icky feelings around religion, it is kind of frustrating, but interesting to see that basically everything seems to be coming to that. Like all the roads lead to the elite have some type of hidden religion. I don't even know if you can really put a name on exactly what it is. It seems to be pieced together from several different things, but they've got some religion and they're, very obsessed with making it manifest or running cycles and programs that speak to it, I guess.
2: Yeah. And the siren is just, it's an incarnation of one of the oldest gods that we have in history. And that's Inanna, the Sumerian goddess of sex and love and war, who is very central in the formation of what is called the Akkadian empire under a guy we've talked about before, which is Sargon the great. Mm -hmm. So this goes all the way back. This goes all the way back to what a lot of people see as the dawn of civilization and culminates with Ishtar and the Babylonian empire. And I really see so many footprints of this Babylon worship out there i mean there's no other way i can really put it you know you showed me that citadel shopping center which is basically Mm -hmm. a sumerian temple design for an outlet mall which is just incredibly bizarre and strange Mm -hmm. and of course we have the babylon gate in the backyard of the old masonic temple where they have the oscars every year it's kind of thing where you These things just pop up over and over again. And your natural inclination towards skepticism and disbelief just kind of has to crumble away because we see the same motifs being hit on the head over and over again. And you just have to think at some point, well, this means something to somebody. They're not going through all this trouble as a joke they're trying to play on us. This is real. And the siren, which is now the most ubiquitous corporate symbol in the world, or one of them, it's becoming one of them,
3: mm-hmm.
2: through its association with Starg- uh, Stargate. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does have an association with Stargate, but its association with Starbucks. I mean, you know, we're seeing this everywhere. And this is how these things happen. You are methodically indoctrinated or initiated into these symbols and icons. And of course, we have mermaid mania, where mermaids are just everywhere all the time. There are actually four little mermaid movies in production right now. There's a little mermaid ballet. There's a series coming up called Siren on Disney. yeah, it's just everywhere. It's everywhere you look all the time. There's a mermaid parade in Brooklyn I mean <laughs> unbelievable i It's like nothing I've ever seen, but this is how these things become dominance how they come archetypal dominance, and what we are seeing now. Is the rise of an archetypal dominant in the siren, which, despite what you might see in the media you know with little mermaid and stuff, is actually a very dangerous and uh, unpleasant motif. <laughs> Mermaids were not aerial you know <laughs> they were creatures who lured sailors to their deaths and then ate them I mean that's what they were that's mm-hmm. what we're talking about and The consort of this, and this ties into the whole idea of the shepherd boy consort that has accompanied all the various permutations of this god S, is this evil clown dominant that we're also seeing rising concurrently. You know, we're also seeing rising with the runaway success of this movie, It, which is just drenched in water and water symbolism. So, obviously, a tie in here. And what I would point to as the Origin of that is that the shepherd boy consort who died, went to hell and was reborn was the source of April Fool's Day. There was a Roman holiday called the Hilaria where these women would celebrate his resurrection. And and that is really the source where you see the fool and the tarot, all this fool clown symbolism, you know, really kind of ties back to that.
3: Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, that is such an interesting angle too. And of course, to really talk about this particular story of Jeff and Tim Buckley and the Cocteau Twins, we really do have to kind of chisel it down to just the core story because it has so many tangents. But one of those tangents is Heath Ledger, who played the Joker, based off the Killing Joke. Killing Joke was also a band and there's connections there as well. And it does seem like in this core story, we're talking about some kind of entity The Song of the Siren being some type of spell or having some type of power. But as you put it in your blogs, it seems to have, over the course of this story, claimed a few trophies.
2: Yeah, it seems to be running around collecting them, which is really kind of upsetting. This all started for me when Chris Cornell died. And my first post on it, I was just kind of talking about depression and opioid withdrawal and and things like that. I wasn't really looking at this at all. I was just looking at his death. My, my feelings on that have evolved. I mean, I don't think he was murdered by the Illuminati, but, you know, my feelings on his death have evolved from the post that I originally did that I wrote on this. But that's the beauty of a blog is that it's charting sort of an evolution of thought. But the Chris Cornell stuff, I wasn't really processing until I found out that he was really, really, really close to Jeff Buckley. So much so that he had become his executor, almost. I mean, he was producing and managing all of Jeff Buckley's reissues. And I thought, okay, that's the signal. That's, that's what really kind of started it off. And just to show you how this all evolved, I found that out, and then I did some digging. And I found out that exactly where he died was the setting for an old... Indian, Native American legend about a siren like figure who lures this mythical figure called the Keeper to his death. And Chris Cornell had a single called The Keeper where he sings, I am the Keeper, I am the Keeper. And it's just like, Mm -hmm. whoa, stop. Wait a minute. What is this? And then you find out that right across the street, practically from where he died at the MGM Grand Hotel, it should be opening right about now. They're opening what's called the Siren Hotel. And you just like go, oh, okay, here we are. Let it rip. <laughs> you know? I mean, it, and it just goes on from there. So finding out that he had died around, you know, at that time, it was getting close to the 20th anniversary of Jeff Buckley's drowning death in Memphis. And of course, we have the Memphis. I mean, he literally died right beneath the Memphis Pyramid. There's that big, giant, Pyramid reproduction on the Wolf River in Memphis that's now owned by Bass Pro Shops. I mean, that's literally where Jeff Buckley died.
3: Hmm.
2: And it just goes on from there. And it goes on in such a way that I could never encapsulate it all in a podcast. <laughs> it's so huge. And the tendrils just seem to run everywhere. And then, you know, I mean, we're talking about Chris Cornell's death, which was a huge news story. I mean, everywhere, all across the mainstream. And then Chester Bennington's death on top of that. I mean, this was huge. So this is how these archetypal dominants choose to reinsert themselves into the mainstream culture through these kind of events. And of course, Chris Cornell's death coincided with the premiere of Twin Peaks, which also has a huge tie-in to the Song to the Siren and Elizabeth Fraser and the Cocteau twins, and on and on and on. So it's literally something we could just do like a week of podcasts on. But basically what we're talking about here. Is a spell, a magical spell that starts off with this song. But there's a huge presence of mind control. You're not only suggestive and implied, but explicit. Mind control, MKUltra, all that kind of stuff. But this ties into my personal views on MKUltra that things that we associate maybe more with Artichoke and Bluebird and MK Search and and on and on and on, you know, they were basically spent 25 years and a whole ton of the government's money pretending that they were looking for technology that they already knew. Mm -hmm. I mean, a thousand years ago, the assassins had perfected mind control and mind control assassins. (laughs) This is not a secret. They didn't need to do this. And then as far as the interrogation aspect of this, People have talked about that. Yeah, I mean, this was all stuff that the Nazis were doing all the time during World War II. So MKUltra is something else. And I'll tell you where I'm going with this because I'm going to be posting on this and the post will go up probably before this podcast goes up. But MKUltra really starts with Alan Dulles in Switzerland, in Bern, Switzerland, spending every single day talking to Carl Jung. And... Carl Jung was also treating Alan Dulles' mistress. And then we also, of course, have Sandoz and (laughs) Albert Hoffman and the bicycle ride and blah, 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 blah. See, I don't think that these people were just worried about mind control and mind control assassins and interrogation. I think that their ambitions were far grander and more disturbing and just more all-encompassing than that. And I've always thought that You know, because we have the tie-ins to Stargate and remote viewing and on and on and on. I really think that this was about the recreation of the world, Mm. literally, and starting from the ground up, starting with the mind. And maybe a lot of people might think that's a little, you know, over the top, but that's what I honestly believe.
1: Well... I'm with you, man. And we will get to how that happens, basically, starting with that Millennium Dome show and the way it connects to the larger Song of the Siren story. But if we are going to have the song itself be the core, be the connective tissue, this song perhaps as a spell or a totem or a vessel for some entity to extract some influence, where does the song story start? A fairly weird place, right?
2: Yeah, extremely weird place. It starts with the final episode of the Monkees television show. And in case some of your listeners might be too young to remember this, the Monkees was a, a knockoff of the Beatles created for network television. Wildly popular, insanely popular. I mean, it was a point where every single they were putting out went right into the top 10. Big, big deal. This was, of course, at the end of their run, You know, when only maybe like 20 million people were watching it rather than 40. Final episode. And what is it about? Oh, hey, it's about MKUltra. What a surprise. (laughs) It's literally what it's about. It's about this mad scientist who is using television to control the minds and put people in trances <laughs> and you know it's like but he's doing so using alien technology. He actually kidnaps an alien who's crashed in his flying saucer. <laughs> of course. Of course. I mean this is like mm, at least 10 years before anybody was talking about Roswell they're talking about this. Okay, gee, what's that all about? So, mind control, kidnapped alien, you know, reverse engineered alien technology. It's like are you kidding me? And then, you know, the monkeys defeat all this. They defeat the mad scientist and his MK Ultra program with the all encompassing power of marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, to which that. They, yeah, which they call Frotus. That was their code name. When they were on set doing the show, their code name for marijuana was Frotus. Huh. So the, the episode is called the Frotus caper. The Frotus caper. And, and interestingly enough, you know, you have the letters for Fraser in there. Oh, just a coincidence. Uh-huh. <laughs> so anyway, at the end of this episode, this bizarre episode, which is like something out of a uh, cosmic trigger or something, Tim Buckley, who is a popular folk singer in Los Angeles, never really made it big. But Mickey Dolan's of the Monkees thought this would be a great place for him to make his debut. And he makes his debut with this song, Song to the Siren, which actually no one had ever heard before except for the, he and the people in his band. So he premieres the song at the end of this whole extravaganza, and it's this dirge, which is based on the classical Greek myth of the siren, which we read about in the Odyssey. And it's basically a love story between him and the siren, but she's luring him to his death. And he knows that he's being lured to his death, but he doesn't care. I mean, that's basically what the song is about. It's about him going through all these stages of confusion about, you know, I know this siren is going to kill me do i fall under this spell and of course he does (laughs) and you know a few years later he dies of a heroin overdose so it's like oh god okay well that's interesting but that's like how it all starts you know that's the birth so it goes on from there i mean these are these are the themes that we're looking at and it goes on from there
1: right and It is kind of a lot to take in. Like you've been saying, when I first started reading it, I was kind of like, well, where is he going with this? I don't know any of these bands. I don't know who the hell Tim or Jeff Buckley are. I'm just unfamiliar with all the characters. But once you really get into it, it is so amazing, really. So we have Tim Buckley, the spokesinger. He sings the song to the siren on TV. And then... The next stage would be it being covered by Elizabeth Frazier of the Cocktail twins, right? That's kind of the, she's really one of the most central figures in the whole story.
2: Yeah, she seems to be, I always say, hope the gods never notice you. Hope the spirits never notice you. Hope they <laughs> never choose you to express themselves through. It never ends well. <laughs> you know, if you read the Bible, the prophets really don't have very happy lives. <laughs> You know, it's it's just, you don't want the gods to notice you. I mean, hide from them. Like, just don't let them notice you noticing them. You know, just to back it up, she's a woman with a very troubled upbringing, very troubled past. She had several nervous breakdowns later on in her career. She had come to believe that she had been sexually molested by her father and by her brother-in-law. And She was eventually, I mean, she's part of a large Catholic family in a very grim industrial suburb in Scotland. She gets into the punk scene and she's thrown out of the house at 16. And she's very, very reticent to reveal much about her background. There's very little known about her. I mean, we just, we have no information except for these snippets from interviews. So she's a troubled girl, sexually abused into drugs apparently is quite violent which is all very funny when you see her videos because you, you get no sense of that but this shows you that we're looking at a case study in dissociation had been seen as sort of a bully in school just falls off the map falls off the radar for a while until she appears in this post-punk band called the Cocto twins Kind of like a post punk goth noise. I mean they're they're very their early material is very abrasive. It's very dark. And they're instantly signed up by a record label in London and they instantly become the toast of the town. Uh, the BBC is having them do concerts on Sunday night and Saturday night. I mean it, it's like no other showbiz story you've ever heard of where they make a demo in their bedroom literally and all of a sudden they're the toast of the town. So it's a very strange story. But here's the thing, and let's get back to MKUltra again. Not a lot of people realize this, but MKUltra didn't really stop in Scotland, in the UK. There's a lot of information that it went on probably into the 80s, at least into the early 80s, particularly in Scotland. Ewan Cameron, who also studied under Jung at the Bergozi in Switzerland, you know, so we have that, MK Ultra, Alan Dulles connection again. Ewan Cameron basically lived right up the street from Elizabeth Fraser. I mean, they they lived in the same county. They were 20 minutes away from each other. But Ewan Cameron was, you know, he died in 1969, but he was also known to have used Naval Royal Hospital, Lennox Castle Hospital, for his particularly brutal form of repatterning as he called it, which was basically instilling a dissociative state in very vulnerable people, particularly women. He seemed to be particularly interested in women, particularly interested in young women. There is a lot of anecdotal and otherwise information that the young girls at the Montreal operation were being sexually abused at the same time they were being tortured. But, you know, he was after something. Uh, he was not after mind control. He was after, uh, I mean, how do I put this? Uh, he's after what I believe personally, what you and Cameron is actually after is his, he's after breaking through to the other side. Mm. Like, I, I honestly believe that. And if you look, this is not something that's popped. up. I mean, go back to the Victorian era. We have all these stories about, traumatized children, particularly traumatized girls, finding themselves wandering into another dimension. You know, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, you know, later we have Wizard of Oz, Chronicles of Narnia, Stranger Things, mm-hmm. the OA. I mean, this, you know, Fringe, I mean, this just pops up over and over again. And if you really read the information about Ewan Cameron's operation, you go, this is not mind control. This is not, I mean, this is like This is crazy, (laughs) but let me tell you what it also reminded me of and what really put me on this is that it reminds me of rites of passage of shamanic initiation. See, I have a, a little saying that goes shamanic initiation is just a fancy way of saying torturing children because that's how shamans throughout history and throughout various cultures have been initiated by being tortured, poisoned. Raped, all sorts of horrible things happening. And, you know, of course, for our purposes, the most troubling example of this, not necessarily shamanic, but certainly transformative initiation is, of course, Sparta, where young boys were just, not only were they just sex toys for these huge monster (laughs) soldiers, they were also you know, tortured. I mean, literally tortured all the time. You know, it's just horrific what you, when you read about, you see a movie like 300 and you go, Oh, look at those heroic Greek warriors. Uh, no, that's not what Sparta was really about. It was horrible. It was like Pizzagate times a billion. I mean, it was just crazy. So yeah, so that's what we're seeing. I mean, I have no definitive evidence that Elizabeth Frazier, you know, fell into, one of these still operating MK ultra programs that were going on in her neighborhood at that time. But, you know, I also know that she exhibited signs of extreme dissociation and, and kind of made dissociation her art, which we see a lot with people who are are survivors of this kind of abuse.
1: Right. So many pop stars have done the split personality thing.
2: Yeah, but she did it for real. I mean, That's like they're going, oh, I want to do Bowie and Ziggy Stardust, you know, like Lady (laughs) Gaga, Beyonce and blah, 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 blah. I mean, you know, it doesn't interest me because it's not real. It's a pose. It's a prefab. It's almost like one of the boxes you have to tick off to be a pop star these days.
1: Right. It's like the commercialization of what for some people was very real trauma and very real torture.
2: Yes. Yes, absolutely. So. We know that uh, Elizabeth Frazier spent three, at least three stints in the trauma ward. You know, I don't mean to laugh at that, but it just goes to show you that this is real, that this isn't like what her publicist told us she should be doing. And she also underwent like a series of very radical and extreme kind of transformations, particularly early on a career where she's got like sides of her heads shaved. It's almost like a mohawk, and she's wearing like. Fishnet stockings and leather minis. And, you know, she's acting very provocatively. And then she sort of becomes almost overnight, this, this Victorian fantasy, this Victorian China doll. And she's presented it, you know, I mean, she, but the thing is, is that, okay, so you go, Oh, that's stylists. That's designers. I mean, this is how the music industry works. And we saw the same thing with Nicki Minaj, where she sort of starts off as this very androgynous kind of street rapper, and then they get to work and they reinvent her. But in this case, it wasn't just that her style and her, you know, persona. Yeah. The look was, well, let me get back to that. I mean, it's not just that like her look, which, you know, her hair and her makeup was done differently and she was wearing different clothes. She literally just looks like an entirely different person. And there are several stages where like, she looks entirely different when you see her on television performing live. And then when you see her in the song to the siren video, it looks like an entirely different person. And she just goes through these stages where not only is her hair and her makeup changing, but it almost seems like the structure of her face is changing. Mm -hmm. And the other bizarre thing, I mean, this is the thing that really kicked it all off of me, is that her eyes are just insane. I mean, not like, you know, you see people with crazy eyes, maybe starry eyes, people with maybe schizophrenia sort of develop this. I mean, it literally looked like she is not human she's not human you kind of catch glimpses of this and she's obviously very self-conscious about it but you'll just see these freeze frames in these videos and you go okay that's not a human being <laughs> that's <laughs> an alien i've never seen anything like this in my life where somebody just looks if you sort of broke it down and you, you weren't about it you go okay well, that looks human and then you look at these eyes and you go that's not a human being <laughs> jesus man and you can see this. I mean, you can go on YouTube and see this. And, you know, I've taken screenshots of this. And it's just like, what the hell are those things in the middle of her face? They're not eyes. They're like, I don't know what the hell they are. Mm-hmm. This is one video, one of their better known songs, Heaven in Las Vegas, which also plays symbiotically and thematically into this whole storyline. Her eyes just look like they're incandescent. It's really weird. And this is before... Indie music videos were being made with like heavy CGI and stuff. And you just look at these eyes and go, why do they seem to be giving off light? This is weird. Mm. So, again, I mean, this is all interpretation and maybe personal opinion or whatever, but it's just like, I just look at it and I go, what the hell is going on? That's not, that's an, you know what it looks like? (laughs) I'll tell you what it looks like. Anybody who's watched the show Supernatural, when, One of the characters is possessed by an angel. Their eyes start to glow and they're weird and they're kind of white light. I mean, that's what they look like, except for it's real. So it's just like, maybe this is based, you know, that whole trope is based on something real. Right. Yeah.
1: Extremely rare, but real. Well, right. And so to get to the story of, Frazier as some type of vessel for a siren-type entity and this song being some type of spell or totem. Yeah, anyone who hasn't heard of the Cocteau Twins or Frasier, do go listen to some stuff because her voice is very eerily siren-like. There's a lot of howling, a lot of wailing, and in times she didn't even sing in English. But, you know, I guess the other aspect we should talk about that's very relevant is... The deaths. Yeah. Frazier covered (laughs) Tim Buckley's song of the siren because that very song prompted his son, Jeff Buckley, another artist to discover Elizabeth Frazier and become attracted to her. They had a very intense romance. And then the icing on the siren cake. Give them the punchline.
2: Well, the punchline is that he drowns. (laughs) I mean, he drowns. Not only does he drown, but he drowns underneath the pyramid in memphis memphis which is of course named after the ancient city strongly associated with osiris and he also died on the eve of this weird secret society festival that they have in memphis where they all name themselves you know with a crew of of osiris with a crew of ra you know i mean all this like heavy egyptian symbolism he died on the eve of that and you just like Okay, but the other interesting thing is that he died on Garland's Day in the UK, which was a day that offerings were made to Poseidon. And the, the implication here is that in the early days, this you know human sacrifices were made to Poseidon, especially when you see how Garland's Day plays out. The interesting thing, of course, here is that the first Cocteau Twins album, which has all kinds of stuff about human sacrifice and people drowning in rivers is named Garland's, so, uh okay, like, what's this all about? And of course, we have Garland Briggs in Twin Peaks, which also plays into this. It's just like, this can't be real. This can't be happening. It's just too weird, and it's like, well, people say, okay, well, this happens all the time, you know, you're just cherry-picking things, and then you go, well, show me when else it happened like this. I mean, show me how else it plays out like this, methodically step by step like this and then they go okay well maybe it doesn't Uh, (laughs) um
1: right it's like it's like a real world version of the siren motif the structure is right there man sings song woman covers song man's son falls in love with woman and ultimately drowns and in fact his drowning story is that he was pulled under they say by the wake of a boat but the the motif is he was literally pulled under the the water and that's like The same kind of thing. It's just a very creepy story when you tie in the way she sings and that she possibly could have been channeling something. You actually wrote that in a 1984 interview, Fraser herself says that she believes she was channeling another force or entity and she claimed her music, quote, wrote itself. And so this is like where I wonder what was her awareness in this situation? Like, what do you think? I mean, a lot of her lyrics were about witchcraft, weren't they?
2: Yeah, a lot of the early songs were about witchcraft. And another early song on an EP, which is all about drowning in rivers, is called Alas Dies Laughing. And Alas Dies Laughing, you know, I sort of spell out how the symbolism in the lyrics basically point to where exactly where Jeff Buckley died. Uh, you know, I mean, and this isn't the only song that does this. The lyrics in the song show you exactly where he's going to die in 16 years from when the song was recorded. And The chorus to the song, which she repeats, I don't know, a hundred times, is Wake Takes. Wake Takes a Lonely One. Wake Takes a Lonely One. Wake Takes a Lonely One. Over and over again. And when you listen to the recording of this, she almost sounds like she's entranced. I mean, she does not sound like she does on these other records where it's just kind of Eddie Van Halen of the vocal cords, just spraying things all over the place. I mean, it sounds like she's in trance, and she's saying "wake takes a lonely one," meaning somebody's going to die when they get caught up in a wake. Because you know the lyrics before she lurches into the chorus go "tides touching walls," so the water is overtaking this person, and it's so scary. <sighs> I mean, it, it, it scares me. It, like people go, oh, you know, whatever, who cares? Let's go see it. No, this scares <sighs> me because this is real. And the other thing, when you talk about the lyrics and the song titles, I mean, we have, you know, "Sea Swallow Me, She Will Destroy You. One of the best songs, which is kind of like if you were listening to ABBA doing Dancing Queen, but you are on ecstasy, like a lot of ecstasy. That's what the song kind of sounds like. I mean, it's just like, oh, my God, it's an orgasm. But it's called Lorelei. And Lorelei is the German incarnation of the siren. I believe this is in the ring cycle in Wagner's ring cycle. But it gets even creepier. It gets even weirder. Because, so what had happened is that she had this relationship with Jeff Buckley. And this name doesn't mean anything to people nowadays, but he was a really big deal in the mid-90s, like the post-grunge era. A lot of celebrities, Brad Pitt, Jimmy Page, Johnny Depp, a lot of like these kind of Hollywood in-type guys who think they're rockers. We're really really seriously into this guy and the first time i, I heard him i go jesus guy sounds like he listens to a shit ton of cocktail to his records <laughs> but anyway so what happened is that she fell in love with him and i mean she really fell in love with him i mean she fell in love with him like you read in old fairy tales she's just crazy 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 fell in love with this guy and he was kind of in love with her but he's a rock star and he's he's doing the notches in the bedpost deal. I yes. mean, he's, you know, he's a rock star who's the young hip thing and like chicks up just throwing themselves at him. So he's like, okay, you know, this really weird girl woman at this point in time, this really weird woman, she's really interesting, but she's really intense and she's kind of crazy. And I think she's possessed. So I'm going to go have sex with this other singer named Joan Wasser, Wasser, which means water in German. Hmm. So he breaks up with her and the first thing she does is record a batch of songs, sort of my least favorite songs she ever sang, but they're all about, you know, Why Don't You Love Me? Please Take Me Back. She's actually singing in English now, and she's like, You know, Why Don't You Love Me Anymore? I Still Love You. You know, I Hate You. I Love You. I mean, just all these kind of songs that you would imagine somebody singing after a really intense breakup. Right. But the creepy thing about it, I mean, it just, there's, there's nothing in this story that isn't creepy she makes a long form video to go along with this. And the opening image is of a river. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like digitally messed up with sparkles and all this kind of stuff, but it's a river. And then, you know, this is sort of the credit sequence to this long form video and it ends with a sunset. So it starts with a river, ends with a sunset. Jeff Buckley dies in a river at sunset. So, I mean, that's how creepy this is.
1: Two years later, by the way. And also throw in that heaven or Las Vegas album element because that also is about the river and where he died yeah road river and rail
2: which the title there describes exactly i mean exactly where he died he died in the wolf river in between an overpass for a road and a overpass for a mono uh, what are those things called monorails like yeah. a rail so you know you got to see this visually because i show it on the blog it's road literally like checking off boxes road okay there's a road there's a river there's a rail one two three bum 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 and you're going like oh okay but the song before that is called wolf in the breast wolf in the breast he dies in the wolf river you know in a river underneath a road and a rail okay so that's kind of weird and those are the eighth and ninth songs on the album right well that's the other thing is that they're the eighth and ninth songs of the album and this is back in the day when people were still buying cassettes and it's the third and the fourth song on the cassette and you know 34 north 89 west is the source of the wolf river where the sky died so it's just like it never like it literally never ends. Yeah. no i'm serious but it gets worse or better i mean depending on your point of view <laughs> so the last song so we have wolf in the breast you know the wolf river in the breast in your chest in your lungs road river and rail where it happens But the song after that is called Fru Fru Foxes in Midsummer Fires. And you think, well, Jesus, that sounds ridiculous. What does that have to do with anything? Well, I'll tell you exactly what it has to do with. It has to do with Chris Cornell's death. And you're like, wait, what? Okay, Chris Cornell dies at the MGM Grand Hotel after performing at the Fox Theater. Okay, so there's our foxes. There's our foxes element. And across the street, from the Fox theater is St. John's church. And you go, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the midsummer fires isn't just people lighting fires in the middle of July. I mean, it's a day it's St. John's day. So it's like, Oh, Oh, wait a minute. So the Fox theater is across the street from St. John's church. So you have foxes, midsummer fires, <laughs> you know, very specific. And you go, okay, well, could be a random chance. What about this frou-frou thing? What the hell is that? Well, frou-frou is a terminology from French fashion. You know, something's frou-frou. It's got a lot of ribbons and bows and rhinestones or whatever. I mean, it's very fancy. Yeah. Now, what does that have to do with Chris Cornell? Well, Chris Cornell used to own a restaurant in Paris. Where was the restaurant? It was in the fashion district. (laughs) So you go, wait a minute. So it's who it is and where it happens. And you just go. You know, the the probability quotient here is really starting to dissolve. You know what I'm saying? Right. I mean, right. So you think, well, so that's Chris Cornell. What does that have to do anything? Well, like I said, Chris Cornell was really super close to Jeff Buckley. So, so close to Jeff Buckley that when he went on tour in 2011, he actually took this phone with him and it was Jeff Buckley's phone. He had this red kind of old school phone. Chris Cornell had on stage with him throughout this entire tour because he said he kept it because he was always expecting Jeff to call him. Mm. How creepy and weird is that? You know what I'm saying? So this is how intense their relationship was. I mean, he's taking Jeff Buckley's telephone and putting it on a stool next to him while he's performing, you know, his acoustic tour. So it's just like, Oh, okay. (laughs) And believe me, this is just the tip of the iceberg. It just goes up and down the line. And really what this all culminates in, I'll just sort of back end this a little for you, is that we're talking about this on my Facebook group and people were like freaking out as these things just piled up one on top of the other. And I said, this is leading to something bad, something very big and something very bad is going to happen. And it's going to have something to do with the siren. You're going to know this has something to do with the siren and it's going to be big and it's going to be bad. And sure enough, right after Twin Peaks ends, I think even while it was ending, We had these hurricanes, starting with Harvey, Jose, Maria, and Katia, all of which have pretty direct, you know, you break down the names and the origins, they sort of all tie into this constellation of goddesses that have incarnated themselves as a siren now, and incarnated themselves as the sirens back in ancient Rome as well. And it's all tying in. But the thing is, is that people go, okay, well, that's open to interpretation. Well, what does this have to do with, you know, hurricanes and blah blah? Well, the siren, mermaids, on and on and on, were responsible, said to be responsible for storms, storms at sea, hurricanes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is sailors believe not only did these mermaids, sirens lure you to your death and then eat you. They also created these horrible storms, which sank your boat and then you drowned and then they
3: ate you.
1: <laughs> you know I mean? Right. And of course, there's that new uh, Netflix show, The Santa Clarita Diet, about a woman who must eat human flesh. And it's all set in a quirky, suburban type of dark comedy landscape. But again, it's it's the woman who is leading people to their death and then eating them. Oh, and it's, it's just it's, so
2: crazy. Yeah, it goes on from there, though, because there's this Polish movie called The Lure, which is about these two sirens who gee, become 80s pop stars, you know, 80s new wave <sighs> pop stars. Who who would ever make that association? You know, I mean, who who doesn't think of 80s pop stars when you think of the siren, right? So that's weird. We have a TV show called The Siren, which is going to be on a new Disney channel, I think early next year. I mean, this stuff is everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's so, it's so pervasive that you don't think about it because it's all packaged and it's like, oh,
3: mermaids, so oh,
2: happy i better buy a tail and go to the pool. No, I mean, mermaids <laughs> are like, you die and you
1: get eaten this is dark this is the apocalypse (laughs) i love this case study man because conspiracy folks are always trying to pick apart the symbols in music in particular and they'll look at you know like pyramids around the eye or rockefeller records or a do what thou wilt chain or something and that's interesting it shows they clearly have knowledge of this stuff But you're talking about the case study of a specific spell and ritual, like a full closed loop. I love the term that this entity is like collecting trophies because we're seeing deaths associated spiraling out from the creation of this song. And this is what those music analysts should be looking at. Like if they really are all into magic and the occult and rituals, well, where is the evidence of that? This is that evidence. It's right here. That's my entire point. Right. Because I've always
2: seen that stuff over the years, I and mean, this is where it really started. It really started with a guy who I had had some contact with named Ben Singleton. He was a high school student from Britain, and he had this blog called Pseudo Occult Media, and he sort of lapsed onto this whole thing with Monarch, and MK Ultra, and the pop stars and all the symbolism. And then you know Vigilant Citizen comes along and sort of strip mines the entire synchromistic community stole a bunch of stuff from me stole pretty much his entire thesis from ben singleton and then it's off to the races because what happens is that you know it becomes viral on the internet and then all these producers and designers and promoters they go oh well let's start doing this intentionally you know Mm -hmm. and they start doing it intent i mean i think a lot of it was intentional from the beginning but they start doing it and it's like oh it just becomes all pervasive, but you know, you can trace, you can trace the steps of that. It's out there. It's just people doing things. It's nothing really terribly unusual about that. It's how culture is formed. It comes up from the counterculture and works its way into the mainstream. Of course, what came up from the counterculture was incredibly toxic and evil and horrible, but you know, here we are. <sighs> but it's interesting, the thing with monarch, because I've always been like, uh eh, not really down with the monarch thing. Not that I don't believe that something like that could happen. I'm just talking about the particular presentation that we saw in Kathy O'Brien's book just stretched my credulity to the breaking point. And it's not just me. I mean, it's Jim Keith. Jim Keith is, of course, dead now because that's what happens with people who really know what's going on. Jim Keith died at Burning Man, by the way, or his cause of death came from Burning Man. And of course, we saw the human sacrifice at Burning Man this year.
1: Right. Guy ran into the fire.
2: Yeah, from McAllister, Oklahoma. McAllister. I mean, gee, that's interesting. Possessed to run
1: into a fire.
2: Yeah, that's creepy as hell. (laughs) But this is 2017. Of course that had to happen because this is where we are. But no, I was going to say about Monarch, you know, I've always been kind of skeptical about it. And I've always kind of felt like Mark Phillips was just kind of like, I mean, rest his soul, he just recently passed away. But I always think that he didn't really exactly take this stuff seriously. And he's having a laugh. People will disagree with me, fine. But, monarch, butterfly symbolism, which we see all over Fringe, of course, which is all about mind-controlled, abused girl who can cross dimensions, of course, because that's what it has to be, because what story isn't about that, right? <sighs> but the whole idea of monarch and butterflies, Elizabeth Fraser pretty much wrote an entire album with butterfly symbolism in it. Mm. And one of these songs is called Plain Tiger, and Plain Tiger is a type of monarch butterfly. So. You know, circumstantial, kind of symbolic, maybe a little bit more, but maybe it's kind of pointing to something a little. Right. Heckler. You know, like it wouldn't surprise me if monarch symbolism was really heavily used in MK MKUltra, MKOff, and whatever sort of grew out of that. But I'm not really buying at least that version of the monarch story that, you know, that we're familiar with. Just because, you know, like Jim Keith said, she has this photographic memory about everything and can remember every detail of everything that ever happened to her, but she can never describe where it happened. She can never describe what an army base looks like. I mean, all these kind of things where you just kind of go, I don't know, you know what?
1: Right. It's like kind of over the top and dramatic and a little commercialized, but at its core, there's some real truth, some real threads running through it. Just kind of like another analogy could be the Pizzagate thing. We know the elite are abusing children, but that got spun off into a weird area. And, it culminated, of course, in that shooter going in there, which then makes it a hush-hush thing. and scary to talk about. And we should have some responsibility for the claims we're making because we might set off some crazy person. That becomes the story. But the core there is a story as old as time. Elite people abusing children. Yeah,
2: and not only abusing children, but often abused, like I said, with this whole shamanic thing, with certain Buddhist monasteries, certainly monasteries of all types. Yeah. you know with a purpose. They believe that children are kind of the gateway to this alternate reality.
1: Right, break the kids and break open the construct.
2: Exactly, not only break open the construct, but they think that it can open Stargates, it can open portals somehow. I mean, that's literally how extreme the thinking is, how just completely like, okay, you know. That's how crazy it can get. Yeah. But you know, in this case, we have this woman and let me just back this up people think well who is this woman who cares about this woman you know she's nobody whatever i mean she sang the what is used for the theme song for house md which was one of the i think it was the most watched show in the world at a certain point in time in it's run the theme song to that she sings and if you go to youtube and look up that video that she sings on i think it's had over 50 million views by now so Hmm. This isn't just completely obscure indie nonsense I'm ranting on about here.
1: <laughs> right. And and so we went through that core story. Tim Buckley writes the song. Elizabeth Frazier covers it. His son falls in love with her and eventually is drowned in a river. And now this little saga, it also ties into maybe what we could call the big picture when you add in that chapter about the Millennium Dome show. Right.
3: Yeah.
2: Well, I'm going to get to that in just a second, but sure. the thing I want to back this up is that, like, so what? He drowns in a river. That happens. Well, that's how these shepherd boy consorts of these goddesses in this siren lineage usually die. Classic example is Osiris. But the other thing in here, I mean, this is how creepy it gets. Buckley, first of all, Jeff Buckley is a stage name. His real name was Scott Moorhead, and, you know, it's a whole other where she seems to have anticipated that, but Scott Morehead becomes Jeff Buckley, and you know, takes on his father's name and his middle name. The thing is is that Buckley means shepherd boy. So he's not only, you know, a shepherd boy symbolically in this this whole drama we're unveiling here. That's literally what his surname means in Gaelic. It mm. means shepherd boy. Now, the other interesting thing with Fraser and you know, we have Elizabeth where we have, you know, the Virgin Queen of the Shakespearean Elizabeth Queen Elizabeth I and then we have this Queen Elizabeth now, who just doesn't seem to ever die. I I think she's I don't know what she is. I, I think she's like a cylon or something. <laughs> she just continues on forever. You know, so it ties into that whole Elizabethan motif. But the surname here, Frasier, comes from the French word for strawberry. It's a it's actually a French Norman name for strawberry. And strawberries, you know, so what strawberries, whatever. Strawberries were sacred to Venus in Roman times. And of course Venus has Adonis, who is her shepherd boy lover, who dies. Literally, I mean, this all probably sounds completely insane to a lot of your listeners, but just take my word for it. Every single detail in this story just lines up exactly in ways that just your head starts to spin. Yeah, It's just, it's crazy. And, you know, I could go on and on about all the songs that presage all this, you know.
1: Well, to give just one more example, can you tell them about the uh, Kissed Out Red Float Boat? Because that's a great one.
2: Oh, kissed out right float boat is is crazy. So Jeff Buckley dies in the Wolf River, underneath the pyramid, which is now owned by Bass Pro Shops. <laughs> so he dies, and his body is discovered a few days later. First of all, this is like there is like a police operation like you've never seen. You know, huge search for this. I mean, helicopters, divers, boats, everything. They couldn't find this guy. Five days later, he, he washes up at the foot of Beale Street. And if anybody's familiar with Memphis and Beale Street and the blues and all that kind of thing, I and mean, it just goes on and on. But he's discovered by somebody aboard the American Queen Riverboat, which is a very famous riverboat on the Mississippi River. It's, it's well known for its water wheel, the Red Water Wheel. Now you think, well, what's the significance of that? Well, she had written a song in 1988 for an album called Bluebell Knoll. And Bluebell Knoll also ties into the hurricanes. But, you know, that might be a story for another day. Bluebell Knoll is another death omen. It's a Scottish death omen. But the point is, the song Kiss That Red Float Boat is a weird song because the music is like, oh, my God, this is my best day ever soundtrack. You know, oh, hey, you know, things are great. Look at the sunset, you know, that kind of thing. But the lyrics, which are very obscured, are basically her singing about how, you know, her husband and songwriting partner is cheating on her. And she's really upset about it. And she's sort of singing in this same kind of cadence that she sings Song to the Siren. So it's almost a sequel to Song to the Siren in a way. You know, she's kind of singing about, you know, he loves you and he doesn't love me. I mean, it's, it's really sad. But the significance of float boat is that the boat that discovered him as the American Queen, the river boat, those paddles on the boat, they're called floats. That's the technical term for the paddles on a river wheel. So, and it's red right yeah and it's red <laughs> it's red it's a red float with red floats i mean ugh, you know and kissed out means like something that you're done with so it's kind of like this cumulative effect but just the fact that it's it's got that title that points to where exactly where his body found on top of the 10 million other details that tell you everything is about to happen in the story and then The way it ends, you know, it's like a kissed out red float boat. And he's kissed out, he's dead, he's drowned, it's horrible. But he's discovered by, you know, the red float boat. And then when you read the lyrics, it's all about you don't love me, you love her. And this is at a time when he was having a relationship with Joan Wasser after he broke up with Elizabeth Frazier. So I mean the whole thing, the cumulative effect of it is just it almost kind of instills disbelief just through cognitive dissonance. Because it just it just piles up, just as a quick aside. She sang another song where she's absolutely channeling the siren. I I will go to the mat on this. It's creepy as hell. And you read the lyrics, and the chorus is "Come feel the deep, come feel the deep, come die, come drown." <laughs> you know, I am the siren. I am calling you to your death. That's literally what what the lyrics are. It's it's really creepy and disturbing. And then the EP that the song is released, the song is recorded for is released, and a couple days later. Jeff Buckley and Joan Wasser almost drowned off Gold Coast Beach in Australia. So it's like, she's saying, you know, die, it's it's time to die now. (laughs) And like, he almost dies. I mean, this is the first time he almost drowned. The second time was when it actually happened. But the other thing, again, it's this whole cumulative effect. The other song on that EP, aside from the single, is the song that's specifically about him. And there are all sorts of, lyrical cues that you know this is specifically about jeff buckley and like the last thing she's singing as you know the song fades out is she's singing stay stay you know stay with me don't go with her <laughs> it's so incredibly sad and tragic on a human level and then the next song is like i am the siren it's
1: time for you to die it's like oh, wow know? it's crazy right. it is it's so layered and i i do want to get to the millennium dome thing but one more layer yeah. is that after buckley died she only released two songs under her name singles called underwater and moses yeah yeah i wonder if she like might have maybe in hindsight realized what had happened or maybe once the spirit left her she realized oh my god there was something going on i was possessed i don't i wonder how she's put these pieces together because i feel like you know if this was some type of magic i don't think she's happy with the result because she lost a great love too
2: yeah no, she's definitely not. This is why I'm saying. Pray the gods never notice you, especially pray that they never choose to use you as a vessel because nothing good ever comes of it, and you know all our myths and religions tell us this, see right? Yeah. all the way back. yeah, it's horribly sad. Not only did this happen, these horrible things happened, but it also just seemed to have taken away her musical gifts. Her voice was just kind of gone, but oh, the other thing I should mention is I talked about that theme song for house m d she recorded that. It's a song, you know, yet another song about Jeff Buckley that she recorded with massive attack, literally as he was drowning. Hmm. Like, that's literally when she recorded. it. So she talks about this on the Jeff Buckley documentary. So it's like she's singing a song. And it's one of these songs, you know, you didn't really love me the way you should have. And this kind of thing. The song's called Teardrops. Pretty well-known song in some circles. And she's recording it as he's actually drowning.
1: (laughs) It's just, it never ends, man. And No, it
2: literally never ends. And that's the thing that people, like I said, people will hear this and go, this guy's nuts. This guy's off his rock. What the hell is he talking about? And then you just see objective facts pile up and you go,
1: all right, he's not nuts. And another one that just popped in my head, because I've just read so many from the blog, There was a time where the Cocteau Twins added a new member, which obviously doesn't happen a whole lot in a lot of bands. And this one in particular, it doesn't happen a whole lot. But the guy's previous band was Drowning Craze.
2: Yeah. And oh, by the way, they added him right after they recorded Song to the Siren. (sighs) I mean, shit. Literally (laughs) never ends. It never ends. And it's it's scary and creepy. And you think, well, why did they choose her? She's not Beyonce. She's not. I mean, first of all, for most of her career, she had horrible stage fright. She was terrified to sing on stage. You know, they hated making videos. I mean, this is not a group that is going to become like a mainstream group. First of all, the core of their career, their best records, are all really, really strange and weird. And you know, they just—they're just, they're not rock stars. They're you know the studio rats. But like I said, this is how it happens. You know, you don't plant a redwood. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You plant redwood seed, and then it sort of grows and. And roots go down and the branches go up. And then all of a sudden it's 200 feet tall, <laughs> but you don't plant redwood. It's the exact same thing because I really believe we are dealing with entities that have a different sense of time than we do. Mm-hmm. And I know that just sounds completely insane to some people, but I really, I, I really just believe that.
1: Yeah, it is crazy. And even though people don't know the name Elizabeth Frazier, I mean, like you said, her song was chosen for house. One of the most popular shows ever. Like, there's points in the timeline where her music does peak to that highest level. It's just we don't know her name. And maybe that's because, uh, you know, we're really supposed to know the name of the vest of the, the spirit, not the host or the spell. Yeah. Well, she does.
2: Peter Jackson, of course, the director of Lord of the Rings and Hobbit is right. a ridiculous acolyte of Elizabeth Fraser, And she used
1: her music, too.
2: Well, he had her sing in the first two Lord of the Rings films and also use some of her music for The Lovely Bones, that movie that he did after he was done with King Kong and the rest of it. And of course, what we're really talking about here is this connection to David Lynch. I mean, David Lynch, you know, I read somewhere that at some point in the 80s, he was obsessed with Elizabeth Fraser. said he was his favorite living singer. You know, that's how obsessed he was with her. And of course, you watch Twin Peaks and you watch Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet, he wanted to use Song to the Siren in Blue Velvet. Not only that, but he wanted Elizabeth Frazier to perform, like lip sync to Song to the Siren. There was going to be a scene set at the prom, you know, with Jeffrey and the Laura Dern character, and they were going to be slow dancing to the Song to the Siren. I mean, you can't dance the Song to the Siren, but he was going to do that.
1: Yeah, it's too weird. Yeah, I mean,
2: this really is where the whole, you know, people who have watched Twin Peaks, The Return, this really is where the whole bang-bing room concept comes, where he has people like Nine Inch Nails and Eddie Vedder, who are all sort of tangentially connected to this whole thing as well. He has them perform to this local bar, and he got the original idea from that because he was so obsessed with Sign to the Siren that he wanted to have it, you know, be the centerpiece of Blue Velvet, which is really saying something he couldn't get the rights to it. He later used it for Lost Highway, you know, with Bill Pullman and Patricia Arquette, this very climactic love scene that he used that for. But, you know, he basically, this is how intense his obsession with Elizabeth Frazier and the Cocteau Twins are. He basically hired a singer named Julie Cruz. I mean, she sang his Cocteau Twins, Elizabeth Frazier sort of analog on Blue Velvet, the you know, Mysteries of Love, which is used on in Blue Velvet. But then he has her do like an entire album where it's like his take on the Cocto twins. I mean that's what the entire album is. And he's been very explicit about this, very upfront about this. He was so obsessed with Elizabeth Fraser and the Cocteau Twins that he basically created the genre out of it. And what this all leads to ultimately is Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks has Elizabeth Fraser and Song to the Siren and it's very DNA and One thing that I would argue is that I think that his interpretation of this trauma that he was hearing in her voice, and this is very important, this one thing that I really want people to understand here, is that this is a story about trauma. This is a story about childhood trauma, about abuse, and how it metastasizes and and what it leads to and how people express their trauma through creativity and, and on and on and on. But I really believe that Laura Palmer is like his interpretation of this, you know, when you talked about this howling, this wailing that on these early records, it's so intense. It's this, you know, she's not screaming, but it's 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 a wail. And I really believe when we see, not only do we see Laura Palmer screaming and wailing in another dimension, by the way, (laughs) in the Red Room, you know, in the Black Lodge, I mean, another dimension, but she also has those crazy ice blue eyes, but they're contacts. She has these contacts on that's supposed to show that she's demonically possessed. They still don't look as weird and scary as Elizabeth Frazier's realized did at that point in time. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, man, it's just it is so hard to kind of wrap your head around the whole thing. But it seems like powerful people might have recognized something special about Elizabeth Fraser and tried to incorporate it into what they do, whether it's Peter Jackson or David Lynch. And then that also does get us to the Millennium Dome.
2: Yes, the Millennium Dome, yeah, well, first of all, let me just say this: Elizabeth Frazier has been basically in seclusion for the past twenty years since Jeff Buckley died. And she's done a couple things here and there. she you know she did some film soundtracks, usually film soundtracks that are very heavily connected to the siren and drowning and all the rest of it, but just out of completely nowhere complete, just out of the clear blue sky, she appeared at Royal Albert Hall. <laughs> You know, I mean, Royal Albert Hall in the heart of London, named after Prince Albert, the prince who had died young, the husband of Queen Victoria. So she comes out of nowhere for basically like a talk about an album that, you know, wasn't having an anniversary, is not considered a milestone in their discography, you know, just basically had nothing to do with anything. So they're renting out Prince Albert Hall, very legendary, celebrated venue in the heart of London, to have Elizabeth Fraser appear for absolutely no reason at all that anyone can tell. I mean, just for nothing. To talk about an album that nobody else talks about. (laughs) But the thing is that she appeared on July 23rd. Now, July 23rd, you know, for people who are Robin Anton Wilson fans, he associates that with Sirius. He associates that with the rising of Sirius. What is the rising of Sirius? The rising of Sirius is, is how the Egyptians marked the floods of the Nile. Okay. This is what I'm talking about here. So July 23rd is a day that has significance to some people You know, certain, I think OTO people and things like that recognize this day as the rising of Sirius, which is associated with the rising of the floods. A few weeks later, what's the big story in the news? Floods. I mean, this is like, what? You understand what I'm saying? This is A venue run by the British crown, not just the British government, but the British crown decides to have Elizabeth Fraser show up for for absolutely no reason on this very weird and symbolically significant day that has to do with floods. A few weeks later, oh, gee, what's going on? Floods. (laughs) I mean, this is how crazy
3: it is.
1: Yeah, it's deep. Yeah. So so you want to be talking about the Millennium Dome? (laughs) No, it's cool, man. I mean, it's all great. But that's how you get into the bigger picture, you know, the worldwide geopolitical picture and outside of just the musical genre we're talking about.
2: So let's go back to Britain. Let's go back to the heart of London. I don't know how many people realize that the Thames River is also called the ISIS. Are you familiar with that? I heard that from you. Yeah. Okay. So the Thames River, I mean, this isn't me just finding this out on some weird conspiracy websites (laughs) and You can look this up on Wikipedia. It's on Wikipedia. So, the Thames River. Everyone remembers the millennium, Y2K, all these kind of things. All this stuff was going to go on. You know, all the computers were going to shut down. We're going to be reduced to barbarism, blah, 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 up and down the line. I mean, I never believed the Y2K thing because. You know, when I stopped believing in Y2K, when I got my credit cards that had the year 2000 printed on them, I was like, oh, maybe the computers can handle the year 2000. So anyway, this was a big deal. So Tony Blair, you know, new labor, new Britain. I mean, it was Britpop. It was a big, exciting time. Harry Potter, James Bond. It was like swinging London all over again. So his project, it actually started on the John Major before him, but his project was going to be the Millennium Dome and the Millennium Dome turned out to be a Friggin' boondoggle, but it was going to be this center, this multimedia installation shaped like a dome right on the heart of the river. I mean, I don't need to explain the symbolism there. So it's crypto-masonic up and down the line. And what the Millennium Dome was going to be, the way it was going to be introduced to the public, you know, the way it was going to become like this destination for everybody. It was going to become the new center of cultural London was the Millennium Dome. Didn't work out that way but whatever so they hired peter gabriel arch bond villain globalist peter gabriel (laughs) to um (laughs) produce the soundtrack for what they were calling the millennium dome show and the millennium dome show was going to be produced by this guy who since passed away called mark fisher and mark fisher became really well known the first thing he did was that he did the wall show for Pink Floyd in 1980, which is, you know, very big kind of multimedia production. And that's where he sort of made his bones. And then U2 hired him and the Rolling Stones hired him and then Madonna hired him. And then I think Lady Gaga hired him. And He sort of became the go-to guy for big stadium, you know, big football stadium spectacle for for rock groups and stuff.
1: Right. For big public rituals.
2: Yeah, essentially, (laughs) public rituals. And so he was hired to produce this Millennium Dome show. So what is the Millennium Dome Show about? You would think it would be about the history of Britain as an empire and its evolving into the Commonwealth of Nations and all the you know the diversity and economics and you know Mm -hmm. London being the new world capital and blah 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 blah. That's what you would think would be about, right? I mean like nationalism. Yeah. Patriotism. That's not not what it was about. (laughs) That's not what it was about. You know what it was about is about the Earth people. And the sky people who are basically demons of the air having a war and then the war between the earth people and the sky people, these flying beings that, you know, look like demons flying around in the air, you know, an earth girl and a sky boy comes together and they create this new hybrid being of humanity and demon <laughs> like, literally, you know, it's like the Nephilim, it's Genesis six, right? Yeah, it's- same story. Yeah. So this is how crazy. Gabriel. Yeah. So Gabriel, Peter Gabriel, what, where did he get his start? In Genesis. (laughs) It gets even crazy that because Elizabeth Frazier, she's only done one concert in the past 20 years and she did it. And it was kind of sad to see because she's not the same person anymore, but she had the original guitarist from Genesis. So this is how. It almost seems like this is being put together by people who have really, really bad OCD and everything has to line up exactly. Oh. So this millennium show is basically every Christian conspiracy theory you've ever heard about <sighs> Nephilim played out literally every day, literally every day for the entirety of the year 2000 in the heart of London on yeah. the Thames, on the Isis. But it gets even better or worse, depending on your point of view the character that Elizabeth Fraser sings is this character named Sophia. Oh, gee, where did we hear that in me for? Sophia? Oh, that must be a coincidence. She plays this character named Sophia. She becomes the mother of the new Horace, the new uh, men of renown, <laughs> if you will, who incidentally flies off in a flying saucer. But she falls in love with the sky boy, and she becomes very sympathetic to the sky boy's plight because these sky boys or sky people or demons of the air However you want to look at it, you know, they're imprisoned and their technology is stolen. And where did we hear this all before? I mean, this is how crazy it gets. So, you know, the, the sky people are imprisoned. They're taken prisoner. Their technology is stolen. And then the earth people build this horrible tower, this giant tower. It's literally depicted as the Tower of Babel in the production, you know, the, the stage production in the Millennium Dome. And what does Sophia do? She blows up the tower. (laughs) What? The tower is blown up through controlled demolition that Sophia, the new ISIS, the new mother of the new Horus, the new mother, you know, of the race of the men of renown, the giants on the earth in those days, on and on Genesis, Genesis six. I mean, it just never literally never ends. You know, she blows up the tower, but it isn't just the tower. See, because what it is, is that there's a tower, but inside it, there's another tower. So what she really does is she blows up the two towers. Huh. And then you, you, you watch this. You can w- go on YouTube, look up Millennium Dome, and you can see this. And you go, Jesus, that looks an awful lot like 9-11. Dude. Like, it really looks a lot like North Tower, South Tower, Building 7, the way they fell. I mean, it, it really just like, huh.
1: Right. The year before it actually happens, they do this play every day of the year 2000, and then in 2001, it's like that was a almost like a calling or some type of ritual to usher it in.
2: Yeah, and of course nine eleven is New Year's Day in the Coptic calendar. What's the Coptic calendar? The Coptic calendar is the calendar of the Egyptians who see themselves as the true... Descendants of the pharaohs, you know, the true descendants of Pharaonic Egypt. They see all these other Egyptians as invaders from Arab countries and and whatnot. They see themselves as the real Egyptians. So, uh, so like that would be the start of the millennium. Okay, oh,
1: that's. I don't feel like this is so important to 9/11, and I don't feel like anybody nails all these parts. And we just seriously connected this whole Fraser saga. Nobody even remembers the
2: Millennium Dome show. Right. And anybody who remembers it, like people who saw it at the time,
1: they don't make the connection to 9-11. But it's like, oh, that's 9-11. That's what they were channeling or trying to invoke. (sighs) Another point about the Coptic calendar is you said it was the year 1717. And I guess what's the importance of that date in particular? Is there any, is there some kind of numerology there?
2: Well, there's two importances here. I mean, 17 is a very important number because it's the day of the death, you know, the date of the death of Osiris. So 17 has, and you know, the Romans came to see 17 is very unlucky. It had uh, these negative connotations. And 17, you know, I've talked about this a lot on the blog. Obama seemed to be fixated on 17. He, he always made these 17-minute speeches, you know, up and down the line. But 17, 17 is the official start of Freemasonry. Hmm. Midsummer, Midsummer fires, St. John's day, 1717.
1: So it's just like, nice little anniversary ritual for them.
2: Oh yeah. It's just like, you see this stuff and you just go, you know, first of all, if people go, oh, well, you know, this is what they do. And to a certain extent, I think that's right. I think that this is what they do. I mean, this is how things work. You know, we can talk about how this plays into the whole NFL thing and the Grammy awards and all the rest of it in a moment. But yeah, I mean, this is what they do. They put on these rituals, but it's usually, it's not like really this well rendered. It's not this. I mean, it just literally seems like somebody with all the time in the world. Right. And really, really, really bad OCD (laughs) just said, all right, I'm going to plan this thing out now. I'm going to start in like, you know, 1981, or no, I'm going to start in 1969, and then nothing's going to happen until 1981, and then 1983, and then 1994, and then 19. You know, it's like this is not how they work, right? Quote unquote, they, yeah, they put on spectacles and rituals, like you know, gothard tunnel and all the rest of it. Yeah, that, absolutely, no, no argument from here. But yeah, I think there are elements of that in here to be sure. But at the same time, it's like. Nobody works like this.
1: It seems too precise for human hands.
2: Yeah, it literally is too precise. And there's so many things like, so she meets Jeff Buckley. Well, first she meets him or she, he meets the band. I don't know if he meets her in particular in 1990 after she sings yet another song where she's channeling the siren, where I, I got to tell you these lyrics because it's so friggin' creepy. So it's a song. The title is ridiculous. It doesn't have anything to do with the song, like most of the songs do. But it's the song where she's saying, I saw a mermaid in the Lagoon Klesova. And the Lagoon Klesova is in Greece. And it's where Lord Byron died. He died on the shore of the Lagoon Klesova. He was injured in battle and he was helping the Greeks over, you know, it was part of the Greek revolution at the time. So this is how smart this woman is. And she's pointing to Byron. She knows Byron. She knows where he died. She's very literate. But then the chorus is like, Gray water, hoist me down under the water. Gray water, hoist me down under the waterfall. That's the chorus after she sings that first verse. And then the next verse is, So until the hour, my Shari peya koyars. What she's saying is that, you know, until I meet you, my dear heart boy, because like, it's sort of this patois mixing French and Hindi. She's saying, you know, until the hour, my dear sweet boy. And then, you know, the rest of it is about drowning in the gray water, which is what Jeff Buckley literally donned in. Uh, you know, the water is well known for being gray. And it's just like, oh, this is really, really, really scary. And it doesn't sound scary until you understand that not only is this explicitly talking about his death, But it's also saying, you know, until the hour when we meet my dear sweet boy, it's like, that's not her talking. Yeah. You know, that sounds crazy. People just think, oh, this guy is nuts. This guy's off his rocker. Mm, I don't think so. I don't think that's her talking. She said the songs
1: write themselves.
2: She said the songs write themselves, and she said she was channeling some disincarnate being. I just take her at her work. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Man. So anyway, people go like whatever, I don't care about this woman I've never heard of her blah blah blah, you know, indie haircut rock, I don't care about this 80s crap. Well, the thing is is that this woman is almost like she's almost like the beta test for this whole generation of pop stars that we're seeing now, you know, your Miley Cyrus, your Beyoncé, your Rihanna, Nicki Minaj, I mean, Lady Gaga, you know, so like that whole thing where they're playing with all this Occult symbolism, and they're also playing with all this dissociation. And, you know, a lot of them really hark back to the eighties kind of sounds. You know, they use that eighties sound, you know, that's very all over the radio these days. So she's kind of like the beta test of it, except for like she's singing songs about things that are going to happen 15 years from when they are recorded. And not only do we have Jeff Buckley, which is kind of a gimme, she had a relationship with, we also have Chris Cornell. And then we have Heath Ledger. Right. Direct tie in. He did a movie called, I forget the title right now, but it was about drug addiction. And it. Candy? It, candy, right. Yeah. And it features Song to the Siren. But it also features this very weird scene with Honey in it. And Honey, you know, if you go to the blog, Honey really plays into this other crazy song that she's singing about exactly where and exactly how Jeff Buckley is going to die in this weird sort of occult code that's recorded, you know, 14 years before it happens. So he gets uh, sucked into it. You know, I show exactly where he lived. He literally lives on the other end of a block where there's a Starbucks. And then, you know, there's something else that ties into the siren. And then I show like within walking distance of his old apartment, he lived on Broom Street before he passed away. You know, there were these weird landmarks that all tie directly into a a particular Cocteau Twins album, the album that has Lorelei on it. And you just go, uh this just doesn't. It's like, I'm really starting to wonder if what people like Elon Musk talk that we're just living in this simulation. This is just some weird sim that we're living in. This is like some weird video game somebody's playing. When you see this stuff just pile up, on top of each other, endlessly, you go, I think he might be maybe onto something there. Right. You know what I mean? Because this stuff is not supposed to happen in a causal reality.
1: Yeah. Right on, man. I love the work you do. And it's really exciting for me when I know we're going to record a show and release a show because you are really on that short list of people I like to talk to and really highlight their work and like I get excited about pressing the publish button when the episode goes out because I know it's gonna blow minds. And, you know, I can't have a guest from the shortlist every week because there's just obviously the nature of a short list is that it's short. But I love it, man. It really is awesome. We've spent so much time talking today. I think the first time I hit you up was close to nine AM and it's now almost 4 p.m. And we've been talking back and forth about doing this all day. And I think we're going to release a really awesome show. And I hope people go to the blog to really digest not only the details we couldn't talk about, but also the pictures you show, which adds the visual aid that's kind of necessary for this. And check out some of Frasier's music. It is pretty eerie. And, man, I guess, you know, we we... Are wrapping this up. Is there anything else that can be said in summary in regards to the times we're in and what people should maybe be most aware of or look for? What's the Chris Noel survival plan these days?
2: Ah, jeez, I don't even know if I have one. I, it's like, no,
1: one's going to survive.
2: Enjoy every day. Touche. You know, enjoy, enjoy every day as best you can. You love the people around you. Be kind to strangers, you know? Yeah. You, you never know what's going to happen. Keep your mind free and clear. Don't get caught up in other people's crusades. Yes. You know, just, uh, don't, don't become cannon fodder for somebody else's game. Just, uh, keep it all clear and, and keep your mind straight. And I mean, that's, that's really the only benefit of any of this, really. The only benefit of any of this is keeping out of other people's traps.
1: Yes. So well said.
2: To me, that's the, like, you know, like what is the benefit of, of knowing any of this? Well, you don't watch CNN and think that you're watching reality or Fox News or InfoWars or ABC or NBC or CBS or whatever. You, You know, just you're not watching reality because, you know, people who watch that stuff always end up getting upset, getting angry, getting angry at other people. You know, I mean, people who watch Young Turks or Alex Jones they just all they they just always pissed off they're always angry you know have you noticed that especially these days they're always just like ang- you know it's like and they're so easily set off and just so you know just const- i mean i'm having this problem when my on my comment section you know i'm just kind of getting bombarded by like people are just like so angry and like blaming like things on me like i had anything to do with it it's just like you know hey man you know, it's just like People are just so, you know, becoming extremists and becoming like really, really ultra sensitive and really easy to piss off. And I'm, I'm just like, I can't deal with it anymore. It's just annoying. Oh,
1: I'm so glad you said something, man. I feel the exact same way. And the only thing I can remind myself of is that 90% of the people, even more than that, 98% of the people listening or reading your blog, They read it, they enjoy it, and they say nothing, and they come back next week. And that's kind of the way I got to think about it, because you do see these comments. And sure, it might only be a dozen, two dozen comments, but you're like, wow, they're the ones you really remember. And you're just like, I didn't think I was going to get that reaction at all. And you're like, it makes you kind of second guess. Do I know my own audience? Like, what's going on here? Are they changing? Am I not changing? But yeah, the sensitivity is at an all-time high.
2: Yeah. And- I it's not going anywhere good, but, you know, we've got to have the uh, KO before we have the Ordo, I guess. You know, I, I just, that's the way it's it's going to play out. I mean, and that's really what I see, you know, if you ask me what I see in that new Star Trek, it's like, yeah, it's everybody gets along as, as long as they're wearing, you know, the Star Trek uniform, you know, the Starfleet uniform. And even then, they kind of don't get along, but, you know, if they don't, we, you know, we'll put them in their place. And if not, they'll die. You know, I mean, that's like that's literally what the, the the entire thing is saying. It's like, if you're wearing the blue and gold, baby, you know, the, the royal, the, the specifically Masonic royal blue and gold, I mean, the same exact tones, same exact Pantone colors, you, you're okay. If not, we're going to kill you.
1: <laughs> yeah, man. Well, I guess I should let you go before we fully complete the nine to five circuit that we've worked so hard to get out of. Well, it's been an uh, intense pleasure for me. Amazing, oh, I, you know. Man. It's like, like I said, any day talking to Greg Carwood is a good day. As far as I'm uh, concerned. too kind, and I I agree with you. Ditto, man. I'm I'm right there with you. I enjoy talking to you. And of course, people should make Secret Sun. They should put Secret Sun in their sphere of influence. But what else, is there? Anything else you're working on that you'd want to tell people about before we get out of here? We can give them the link. But is Lucifer Technology becoming a book?
2: Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I I have a rough draft of a book a novel that I've been working on that's that deals with a lot of these themes. Uh, I have the rough draft of, the first draft. I should say I have so many things, uh, you know, it's just a question of finding time to do it because every time I really, you know, start to pick up steam, I have to stop and work on something else. I mean, it's the story of my life, but you know, I've got to pay the bills and the mortgage and everything like that. You know, I've got like a lot of things, a lot of irons in the fire. I just need to find
1: the time to really get them done. Right on, man. Yeah. Well, Best of luck. I guess we're racing against the clock, but you are one of the greats and take care of yourself out there, man.
2: Oh, you and your your lovely wife as well. And uh, everyone listening
1: out there too. Right on. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Bend the knee, people. Christopher Knowles dropping knowledge like no other. A show I really enjoyed, and the whole Elizabeth Frazier thing is just so weird. I'd never heard of her, yet she's everywhere. Lord of the Rings movies, the Millennium Dome performance. These are, like, major things, and maybe some media folks who have the eyes to see realize that there was some power there and just wanted to incorporate it into their own projects. I still struggle to know exactly what I'm looking at with some of this stuff, but I love tying in Starbucks. To me, that is something I've been thinking about for a long time, but nobody really talks about. Just think about the addiction people have to Starbucks and the way they're summoned by the siren every damn day. Born from Seattle, a city on the water. And if you look at the four versions of the logo used since 1971, the theme is zoom in on the siren, remove all the other elements. Now they've completely removed the wording because I'm convinced they just know the power of the siren. But there is so much about this show I liked. I think another great point Chris made is that the value of this type of study, of being into conspiracy culture, is avoiding the traps they lay. Yeah, it can be depressing and stressful sometimes, but I just think those are normal reactions to seeing the real world. Sorry. Sure, ignorance and denial are bliss, but it's because you're in an artificial bubble. People should be depressed and stressed and pissed off when they see the world stage as it really is. It should be jarring when you're presented with data that just doesn't fit into the worldview that's been rolled out for you, and you actually have to think about things for yourself. That type of thing is the only real catalyst for change, if a real change ever even comes. Because in college, I was really bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and thought, if just enough people saw these Zeitgeist movies, we'd all wake up to the ills of the system and probably work to refine it, but I lost a lot of that a while back. If you're waiting on the world to change, you're going to be waiting a long time. And it is such a lame thing to say, be the change you want to see in the world. But it's also so true. Our fight is an individual fight, and by winning it to the extent that we can, which really just means escaping the 9 to 5 for something you're passionate about, reclaiming your life, and doing just well enough financially to distance yourself from the system, it's the only way to make a difference. If you don't follow Rune Soup, let me just say Gordon dropped on the blog that he just bought a five-acre farm in Tasmania to start his permaculture paradise. He's not protesting on the streets or blocking an unrelated highway. He's just manifesting the life he wants to live. Sure, he advocates that everyone should live that way, but it's not like he's going to sit and wait for the entire culture to flip it on like a light switch. You just have to do it. And then more people do it, and then industries pop up to support people living a sustainable permaculture life, and then that world gets bigger. So if you do want change, you have to get it, you have to be it, and not just talk about it at the water cooler. My life, for example, is pretty far off from Gordon-level mastery, but the enjoyment of life is definitely at an all-time high. Distancing myself from anything I don't want to do or care about, that's at an all-time high. But I still have a ton of work to do overall, or magic to do. Which, if you've really tried to get deep into, is almost a full-time job in itself. It takes a lot of discipline and dedication. But like Gordon, Chris is one of those guys I consider a bit of a mentor. Both of them are members of that inner circle that I tend to use to recalibrate when I start to get a little bit lost in the conspiratorial weeds. I hope I can actually get Chris back before the end of the year to add in his latest revelations and all the Vegas connections. And I think this might be in the plus show, but Chris also made a good point about being careful not to normalize pedophilia. I do get so cynical about it since it doesn't surprise me anymore, but we don't want to become numb to what pedophilia really is and how fucked up it actually is. One last thing I did want to mention about this overall show and the idea of an entity or some type of prophecy coming through this type of musical channeling, it might sound really weird and far out, But as Chris mentions in the blog, and Preston Gibbs mentioned in our show about prediction magic, oracles in Greece, this is kind of how they used to deliver prophecy, usually in some type of prose. And I know it's Hollywood stuff, but you do see examples of witches talking and Dr. Seuss style rhymes a whole lot, and I think there's a basis for that. So considering that aspect, if that is a magical mechanism of channeling or whatever, in our world... In modern times, that mechanism would probably come through a musical artist. And remember that this is someone who did sing about witchcraft and magic. She did say her songs tended to write themselves and that she felt like a vessel for something. So it's a pretty big fucking open thing, but just nobody pays any attention. I guess if I had to describe my worldview at this point, it would be a soup of synchromistic notions, Gnosticism, mild anarchism in the sense that the smallest workable decentralized governments would probably work best, and then of course throw in an animist attitude towards consciousness, and clearly you can see the influences there. But if you think about your general ideas as part of a formula, and you think, well, here's some odd data about the world, how do I explain it? Or maybe here's a reoccurring problem for society and the control structure. What's the fix for that? And you find yourself inserting the same worldviews into the equation and finding that things check out. Well, then you found a pretty good philosophy. And it's great to have philosophies that don't require everyone to think the way you do. They don't seem to work out too well. But for example, when you get deep into consciousness studies and near-death experience, plants and animals, and our connection to the world... There's no part of what I've seen that can't be folded into the animist perspective in some way. So I think I can check that box. And it might sound condescending, but a big problem is that number one, the general population doesn't have good ideas about life anymore. And number two, without good ideas, there are no good arenas to test them out in. I wish the nation was tuned in nightly as philosophers debated their outlooks on consciousness and material reality. Rather than them just trying to sell you cars and pills in between broad comedy and whatever stupid stories an actor can get through just to promote that new movie. We've been dumbed down so much that I can't even talk about Gnosticism and synchromysticism or even decentralization with very many people. It's a very short list. I've seen a lot of people that surprise me wake up to the idea of manipulated manufactured events or false flags in the wake of Vegas because it is so sloppy. But still, a lot of my friendships are based on who wants to go paddleboarding or grab a few beers. Or, of course, the shared trauma of working in retail. And I love everybody I hang out with, but you can easily go years without anyone getting deeper than an analysis of various Black Mirror episodes or an appreciation of the new Overwatch skins. And oh yeah, I have that Cthulhu skin for Zenyatta, so I'm no better. But my only point is that the campaigns of dumbing us down, controlling our education and bombarding us with the bright lights and flashing colors of the digital era have definitely had an effect. A very, very deep one. It's funny because I do have lifelong friends that sometimes feel the need to apologize and say, oh, I'm glad you're doing well with the show. I'm sorry I haven't gotten around to listening to it. And I'm just like, dude, don't even bother yourself. Because if you're not interested in this type of stuff, don't try and force it just to do me a favor. I'm totally cool just smoking a couple joints and going to see Kingsman too. Fuck it. I've spent too many years trying to change the world. Now I just want to have a good time and kind of compartmentalize my conspiratorial side like we do here. And I'm sure a lot of you feel the same way. You listen to this show. You get deep into these ideas. But how often do you bring them up in general conversation? It's kind of a privileged club. And like Chris said, all we can do right now is be good to people, take care of the ones you love. The game is bigger than any of us, and so what are you going to do? Just keep in mind which way the general wind is blowing, what gods are whispering in the ears of man right now, and navigate accordingly. Also, sign up for THC+, and all your wildest dreams will come true. In this Plus show with Chris, we switched gears to talk about Braintree, Massachusetts, and the surrounding area weirdness. It is where Chris grew up. He knows a lot of strange things about it. And we got into the Orion Kraus murder case, how mind control might fit into that picture, how that whole area is a hotbed of military intelligence and human experimentation. And I would say trafficking, too, but that seems to be everywhere, unfortunately. We did get into the influence of the Nine, which is one of my favorite subjects. And also Chris pointed out that the date of 1001-1001, I mean, that's binary for Nine. And this is the type of event that shapes culture, and that's what the Nine said they wanted to do, is influence culture. So it's a weird string of events. But we also talked about the Netflix shows OA and Stranger Things, and the Babylonian cult behind the curtain. All great stuff. Sign up at the thehiresidechatsplus.com. $5 for 5 extra hours a month. You know the drill. Treat yourself. I'm sure you get a lot more out of it than $5 spent most other places. But I'm getting out of here. Big thanks again to Chris. Go listen to some cocktoo Twins. Go read the next chapters in the story on the newly redesigned Secret Sun site. Watch the first THC and Tinfoil Hat live show on our YouTube channel. Tide yourself over for a few days, and I'll see you soon. Your move invoked entities, sorcerers of symbolism, and ethereal overlords of the earthly plane. Your fucking move. Oh no,
4: you see. The world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings. Control over everything. The 9 to 5 is trying to steal you. Now, don't that job seem silly? Hello, can you hear me? Should I play back recordings From some spy agency Wish we were younger And free I'll be thankful when it's all exposed The vast conspiracy There's such a difference Between us And the damn